You're listening to a Tudor and Stuart Ireland conference podcast. The sixth annual Tudor and Stuart Ireland interdisciplinary conference took place at NUI Galway in August 2016. The conference was generously supported by an NUI Galway President's Award for Research Excellence to Professor Stephen Ellis, the Moore Institute at NUI Galway, the Discipline of History at NUI Galway, and the Society for Renaissance Studies. As in previous years, the majority of papers were recorded for podcasting by Real Smart Media, in association with UCD's History Hub. There are now more than 140 podcasts from previous Tudor and Stuart Ireland conferences freely available. To access this archive, go to historyhub.ie forward slash podcasts or visit tudorstuartireland.com. In this episode, a recording of a paper by Raina Howe from NUI Galway. Her paper was entitled Tudor Wasteland or Gaelic Fossilk, Historical Perspectives of an Early Modern Irish Environment. So I just start out, um, this map that I have, I'm sure that there's quite a few in this room who are familiar with it, uh, is the, the famous Leash Offaly map of circa 1560-1561. Um, it's held in Trinity at the moment. And it's, I think it's very illustrative of the period. Um, not sure how accurate it is, um, but uh, the woodlands within the centre dividing Leash and Offaly, um, we will uh, talk about that uh, later on. And uh, I just think it's a gorgeous map. Um, I know teaching tutorials uh, throughout the last year, I always used to bring it to the class for the students to see, and they would be absolutely just thrilled, you know, by looking at something tactile in their hands. Okay. The academic discourse of the 16th century Irish landscape is predominantly about the extent of once existing woodlands, but rarely about how that perspective might be skewed or oversimplified. Given the density of the Tudor documentary record that highlights the supposed wooded terrain, the overall synthesis of these documents illustrates how difficult it was to expand a centralizing and increasingly martial law towards the end of the Tudor era. Many geographers and historians of the last century and a half have adopted a Tudor vocabulary and perception of the Gaelic environment as a formidable, untamed, anxiety-ridden, and a densely wooded wasteland. It has become, in essence, the contemporary perspective of how to view early modern Ireland's environment. Yet the problem with this perspective, as with all historical perspectives, is whether there is enough substantial evidence to support this view. The the adoption of these Tudor perspectives by historians and geographers on the historical Gaelic environment is problematic. The thought that Ireland could have been as heavily wooded with dense and untouched forests as the Tudor paper trail is said to suggest places the 16th century Irish as a misunderstood and mysterious people of woods, their advanced methods of woodland navigation and management forever lost in the recesses of time. One can see the attraction of such a view, yet this has to remain a tentative notion at best because, as of yet, there has not been much evidence to support it, either from the Tudor paper trail or from Gaelic documentary sources. This argument about the credibility of the sources does not question the validity of the Tudor sources or narrative as a whole, but only the wisdom of accepting such perceptions of the environment lock, stock, and barrel without a critical analysis of some Gaelic sources read in conjunction with the Tudor historical record, especially when it comes to a definitive source of how the native Gaelic peoples might have interacted with and managed their native woodlands in the 16th century. Yet neither does this analysis favour a romantic view of the early modern Gaelic in the woodlands. The majority of Gaelic poetry of the period describing the topography of the land 
seems to suggest a rather utilitarian view of the woods, not one of hermits or otherworldly knowledge. The propensity for the vocabulary of the Tudor documents to describe an uncivil or savage society obviously does not cast the early modern Gaelic people within a fair or sympathetic light, albeit it is a historically insightful and valuable one. This side here uh, illustrates top, the topographical words used by the Tudor writers uh, when discussing the Irish environment. Um, you type any of these things, say, in the state papers online, and you'll come up with loads of references about the wooded nature of the environment. And uh, below that, there are just a few of the myriad forms of topographical words found in Irish place names, uh, and these ones which demonstrate the Irish view of a landscape as woody and wilderness. I feel that by examining place names in Ireland, we can get a sense of how the Gaelic people might have viewed and organized their woodlands by the names they used for places. One case study that I have been looking at in the past, and that keeps reappearing in my research, is the other area otherwise known as Gallen in present-day southeast Leash, and the name still carries as the parish of Desert Gallen in the barony of Colonna. Here we have a Tudor document which demonstrates the problem, the Tudor administration. Desert Gallen features no less than 21 times in the Tudor documentary trail under Lord Deputy Fitzwilliam. Here the land is presented as problematic, a barren wasteland inhabited by the king's Irish enemies. But in this next slide, here is a selection of uh, 14th or 15th century O'Hearn, uh, Irish Gaelic poet, uh, topographical poem, which illustrates the use of this region as an Irish hunting ground. So there seems to be a gulf between the Tudor administration sources and the Gaelic sources. In, fact, in effect, a bad dream with no sound, in the words of Patricia Palmer of the University of York, meaning that the Irish have no voice or seem to have any agency in the narrative of conquest. The overriding Tudor perspective is for the dismissal of the Gaelic environment as a wild and unmanaged wasteland, but this perspective must be kept at arm's length when trying to deduce how much credibility that perspective has. Otherwise, we are left with an oversimplified understanding of how the early modern Gaelic people might have interacted with and used their environment. While a letter written by Fitzwilliam may describe Gallen as a wasteland in which the Irish lived, these place names that are found within the region also demonstrate that to the Irish themselves, Gallen was known as being a bit of a wilderness area, suitable for the hunt and detached from normal day-to-day -day Irish civilization. As said, the various Tudor documents of the period about how the landscape looked must also be critically analysed in conjunction to uh, the Irish Gaelic sources that we have available to us, and such as I think place names is really a place that, I mean, is only just beginning to be discovered in this way. Um, so if any new historical perspective, the Irish env environment should pre present itself it is worth looking at two early documents in which the perceptions of Ireland's 16th century environment are crucial in the debate of environmental and political perceptions, as these documents present polarized views of how wooded Ireland may have been. By the latter half of the 16th century, a vibrant discussion had developed amongst writers and philosophers concerning the nature of the uncivil Irish. This discourse has been going strong ever since. This debate originated from the various opinions of the Irish by pro-Tudor and Studer government writers of Ireland, expounding upon the barbarism and incivility of the Irish to an educated audience on mainland Europe, so that an English reform and conquest would not only be seen as beneficial to the Irish, 
but would discourage help from France and Spain as well. Gaelic Ireland had its defenders, of course. Among the most notable were Peter Lombard, John Lynch, and Geoffrey Keating. Another writer of fame supporting Gaelic Ireland was Philip Sullivan Aubert, uh, who is most famous for Historiae Catholicae Hibernia Compendium, uh, about 1621. Uh, an exiled Irish nobleman living in Spain, whose family came from Munster, he also wrote a little-known manuscript called the Zoilomastics, co- uh, completed around 1626. It was found in the manuscript collection in 1932 at the University of Uppsala in Sweden and translated from Latin and English into English for the first time by Dennis O'Sullivan and published in 2009. It is a very important source for early modern historians in Ireland as it provides new insight in the discussion surrounding the civility versus incivility debate in one of its earliest forms. For the direct purposes of, of the project that I'm working on, it also provides a perspective as house to how the historical Irish environment might have looked. It provides a native's description of the natural environment, its purpose to refute the popular claims that Ireland's environment was wild and unmanaged. The Zoilomastics was written to dispel the propaganda. The 12th century clergyman Geraldus Cambrensis, who I'm sure we're all quite familiar with here, made in his Topographica Hibernica. In Book 1, Chapter 4, Geraldus states, Ireland is a country of uneven surface, mountainous, the soil is friable and moist, well-wooded and marshy. It is truly a desert land, without roads, but well-watered. Cambrensis Topographia, 1188, describes a medieval Ireland that was essentially perceived as a wilderness and the Irish living like primates within an unmanaged landscape. Cambrensis then followed up with Expugnatio Hibernica, which was out in 1189, a work which narrates the Norman conquest and also defends it on the grounds that it was the only way for the Irish to become civilized. Both works certainly do not portray Ireland or its inhabitants in a positive light, as they more or less defend the need for a Norman conquest of Ireland. The works are a condemnation of Gaelic Irish society and describe the Irish as uncivil and disorderly, a perspective held through the 16th century and beyond. Cabrensis' works were foundational texts for the Tudor administration centuries later, which acted as a type of definitive guide to the wild Irish and their ways. O'Sullivan, amongst others, who recognised the bad effects that Cabrensis' works had on Ireland's reputation in England and mainland Europe, singles out the topography within the Zoilomastics. He refutes, point by point, Cabrensis' claims made, defending the natural environment and its many benefits and uses. In doing so, he inadvertently acknowledges that land use and management were often seen as the tally stick in which civility was measured in Renaissance society. O'Sullivan states in his conclusion a comprehensive list of topics he has covered. These things I had which I could gather here in order to weave together a description of Ireland concerning its names, its fertility, temperateness, situation, outline, regions, bishoprics, towns, mountains, woods, ports, lakes, rivers, springs, terrestrial and flying creatures, insects, aquatic beasts, trees, corn, uh, leguminous plants, grasses, things born of water, metals, types of soil, stones, gems and wonders. I hope you will all go out and look for a copy of this book. (laughs) Uh, he, then he then asserts confidently against Cambrensis' claim above. What I've taken up, I seem to have accomplished, that Ireland is not deserted, without roads and boggy, as Geraldus would have it, but that it is heaped with glory under many headings. 
O Solomon's Zoomastics is the early Renaissance work in describing in an orderly and scientific matter the floral, fauna, and topography of the environment from an Irish person's perspective. He is involved in a much broader debate about the measure of civility amongst the Irish and presents an orderly and scientific description of the Irish environment to an educated audience in Europe. While he doesn't actually argue the tradition that Ireland was a densely wooded island, his attention in the Zoilomastics to woodland cover does not assume as a prominent role in his description as one would expect. He lists four woodlands in Mudster, three in Connacht, four in Ulster, and three in Leinster. The tradition that Ireland was a densely wooded place existed in the 16th century due in large part to the revival of the writings of Cambrensis and the pop propaganda of the Tudor administration. Richard Bagwell, um, a Tudor historian from 1840 to 1918, uh, teetering on the age of antiquarianism and Tudor history as we know it in the 21st century, he's noted as a historian for giving a thoroughly systematic view of the development of the Tudor state within Ireland. He provides an accurate narrative of events in the era, albeit from a Tudor perspective. There's a whole section within the first volume detailing an interesting and logical narrative of why the Irish might have been living in the woods and the bogs in the first place. He cites the beginning of the Norman Conquest as the most traumatic period in which Gaelic land ownership was disrupted. The Irish, as the losers in the conquest, fled to the natural shelters and fastnesses of the mountains, bogs, and woods, while the Normans occupied the fertile plains and valleys. The physical features, he says, of a country must always have great influence on its history. Plains naturally submit to strong and centralized government, while mountains tend to isolation and to the development of local liberties. Where races have warred for the possession of a country, the weaker has often been driven into some mountainous corner, which the conquerors have been contented to bridle by castles or fortified towns. Eventually, as the Normans either lost their territories or, as the saying goes, became more Irish than the Irish themselves, the Irish began their encroachment back onto their original lands. This eventually led to what we know as the surrender and regret schemes of Anthony St. Ledger during the Tudor century. This explanation of how the Irish came to their barbarous state is perhaps a little more sympathetic, as it allows for the possibility of the Irish once being productive stewards of agricultural land, something which does not feature in either Cambrensis or Horace traditions of Ireland as a predominantly wooded island. It's unromantic, but it's also non-judgmental, like, unlike Crembrensis, in that it tries to evaluate the condition, and I quote, condition. And whenever I mention the word uncivil or barbarous, I may note, I, I put these in italics. It's not what, actually, what I actually believe. Uh, of the Irish living in their woods within a broader historical pattern seen elsewhere in Europe. The limitations of these analyses, however sympathetic in its attempts, is the assumption that the Tudor perception of Irish society is accurate, and that the Irish did, in, did indeed live in woodlands and bogs and were just as archaic as the Tudor paper trail suggests. This is generally as far as historians have taken the relationship between the Irish and the woods, and generally it derives from a military point of view. The Tudor narrative is punctuated with instances in which the Irish are standing on the borders of woodlands that are naturally and artificially fortified, ready to engage with the usual guerrilla warfare that is described by government officials. This narrative illustrates Bagwell's and many other historians who follow within this traditional analysis of the Tudor century, based upon the extensive paper trail left by administrators, officials, and writers. 
The shortcomings of contemporary perspectives, from my point of view, of the early modern Gaelic environment is that it generally arises from historical traditions that are limited both by Romanticism and an over-reliance upon the Tudor perspective. Other historical baggage that arises is the notion that an environment can only be value based upon the products it produces for a market system. So too does the notion that pastoralism somehow equates to a disorganized, antiquated, and unfulfilling use of land management because of the lack of finished products it produces for a market economy. The Irish were many times equated in the latter half of the 16th century to the First Nations peoples of North America, who were also incorrectly viewed as unproductive managers of the environment. Historical perspectives of the environment match the propensity of the perceived civility in which the people lived in that landscape. The ideology that the Irish were incivil makes perfect sense that they also lived with an uncivilized landscape from the Tudor mind. However, what may have constituted wasteland to the Tudors may have in actual, actual fact been quite useful to the Irish method of woodland and pastoral management, a theme which I hope to explore in my project. Tudor perceptions of the exploitability of the environment are very similar to modern attitudes of environment management and organization, and these tend to be wrapped within the web of town and market productivity. S.J. Connolly, uh, a historian who's neither embraced the romanticized woodland tradition of Ireland, nor what he terms as simplistic models of thought based upon a victimized native Ireland and a colonizing England, has an economical perspective based upon Ireland's land use, although his perspective seems to follow the traditional historical narrative of the Tudors. Within the contemporary discourse of Ireland's historical environment, there is a tendency to view Ireland as an almost prototype of a failed state of capitalist enterprise in the 16th century, far before capitalism existed as we know it. Frequent mentions of the apparent lack of towns, the lack of manufacturing, and lack of a tillage-based agriculture in Connolly's description of the environment leaves one wondering if this perspective has not been influenced by the Tudors when comparing the progress of the island to that of England's southeast. Such perspectives of the Irish environment as Connolly's, however, are nothing new within the larger discourse of Ireland's political and economical history. Views of Ireland's backwards economy the causes and effects have been analyzed by historians studying the era of plantations in the 17th century right through to the failure of the Act of Union in its hopeful tentativeness that becoming a part of Ireland should somehow mend the failed economy of the sister island. If Ireland did not measure up to the perceived high standards of husbandry of southeastern England, then clearly Ireland was, in, in, in colonial minds, inherently backwards and archaic and needed to be reformed to emulate that of England's. Yet the surprise of Lord Mountjoy marching through Offaly in 1600, a region that was supposed to be wild and waste, surprised him. It is incredible, he wrote, in so barbarous a country, how well the ground was manured and how orderly the fields were fenced, their towns inhabited, and every highway and path so well beaten. And he was talking specifically about Geshel. Um, which was under uh, lordship of the Odempses, who were actually quite loyal to the crown up to this point. Um, they never feature as the main subject of focus within the main discourse of Tudor historians, but instead form the civil background of a story that is famously well-known and accepted. There has not been an analysis of what the Tudor perspective of woodlands could have actually meant, 
alongside a coherent appraisal of woodland management from Gaelic sources. Aside from Connolly's work, a deferring contemporary approach to the subject of the early modern Irish environment is William Smith's analysis of the woodlands. He defers from other contemporaries in that he takes the Tudor narrative of woodlands to another level of military sophistication. He certainly acknowledges the traditional Tudor narrative of the Irish using woodlands as the main strategic front against the opposing military, but he does not accept that this was somehow a symbolic backdrop of the Gaelic as a backward and unorganized society. Instead, Smith believes that woodlands were intended military boundaries, not only against the Tudors, but against other chieftaincies as well. However, his descriptions of the Irish as masterminds of woodland defense almost portrays the Irish as a national unified front against the imposing English invaders. And sometimes I believe that this idea may inadvertently play right into the hands of the Tudor perspective of Irish woodlands. Thank you. So this is Eileen McCracken's map here. McCracken's map portrays woodland distribution circa 1600, just at the point when the assault on the woodlands by the new English and Scots landowners and settlers were to take on a marked intensity. Beyond this map lies the extent of woodland clearance already achieved by the Tudors since the mid-16th century. The destruction of Irish lordships and woodlands marched together. What I disagree with is the idea that the Tudors succeeded in woodland clearance, as the documentary trail of the Tudor administration often bleats for extreme measures. But as with the many other shuddahs of Tudor policies in Ireland, the measures were never actually possible to implement because of a lack of resources, or indeed had any long-lasting success. It also ignores the fact that throughout history, the Irish are not merely victims of colonial deforestation, but sometimes benefit from the hungerwood of Ireland. None of the plantations uh, of the Tudor century were successful in which New English or Scottish settlers would have made a significant change to the environment within the century, often as a result of resources and martial law. The sheer amount of labour needed and the provision of men to cut woodland stems from the perspective that the Tudor state had an infinite supply of money and resources in attacking woodlands. Overall, however, the Tudors found it nearly impossible to maintain a single garrison outside the Pale without the cooperation of native Gaelic chieftaincies. So overall, I hope my presentation has just sort of given you uh, an aspect of the problems that uh, we encounter with Tudor perspectives of woodlands um, and also to not, not just accept English documentary sources as the full front truth of how woodlands might have looked like and how they were used by the Irish peoples of Ireland. Thank you. Thank you for listening to this Tudor and Stuart Ireland conference podcast. If you would like to access the archive of more than 140 podcasts from previous Tudor and Stuart Ireland conferences, please go to historyhub.ie forward slash podcasts. All podcasts are freely available on iTunes and on SoundCloud. For more information on the annual Tudor and Stuart Ireland Interdisciplinary Conference, visit the conference website at tudorstuartireland.com.